Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, Lord willing, the plan is to finish this chapter tonight, to cover the remaining five chapters of Exodus in four sermons. Actually, the remaining six chapters of Exodus in four sermons. Exodus 35. 34, rather, verse 29. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them his commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. Whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let's pray. Show us your glory. Lord, we thank you that when Moses baked in that glory for 40 days or possibly 80 days, his face shone with it. Let us shine with your uncreated glory. Teach us to stand in your presence, to be irradiated with your light. Help us to turn to the Lord, unveiled, beholding his beauty. We pray for ourselves that you would keep us from distraction. Help me to speak boldly and powerfully and accurately. Let us see the face of God in this very sermon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go back with me to Genesis chapter 32. In Genesis 32, Jacob is returning to the land of his birth. He's incredibly nervous about meeting his brother who wanted to murder him. And when he hears that his brother has come with 400 men, then he really gets nervous. And he starts sending present after present to Esau, saying, well, maybe after the sixth or eighth present arrives, Esau will realize that I mean him no harm, that I really like the guy, though not enough to want to live near him. So Jacob, verse 22, arose that night and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. The socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask me about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Peniel means the face of God. Jacob wrestles with this mysterious man and announces, Peniel, I have seen the face of God. And I'm still alive. I lived to tell about it. The man wouldn't say his name. He didn't need to. It was very clear to Jacob who it was that he was dealing with. Jacob saw the face of God in the face of the man who wrestled with him. A clear prefiguration of the coming of the God-man, the man whose face is God's face. Moses, when he comes off Sinai, has something very similar. His face is not God's face. His face has not become God's face. But in his face, something of the glory of God can be seen. The traces, the rays of glory, the afterglow of baking in God's presence is there. The most basic lesson from this text is very simple. God's glory shines in the mediator's face. There's far more here than that, of course, and we'll see, especially looking at 2 Corinthians. But the basic lesson, God's glory shines in the mediator's face. Moses found this out when he saw the congregation's reaction. We're told, in fact, the narrator almost zooms out a little bit. It was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. Moses has come up and down many times. And only on one other journey are we told anything about the journey. That's where he has the conversation with Joshua about the noise of war in the camp that's actually the golden calf worshippers. But Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the camera zooms out a little bit to show us the two tablets of the testimony in Moses' hand. Moses has the commandments, he has the covenant, he's inked the deal with God, but he doesn't know that his face is shining. He's been on Sinai a long time. He was out there for 40 days before the golden calf incident. Depending on how you put together the evidence in Exodus and Deuteronomy, He may have been on the mountain another 40 days after the incident, or possibly even 80 days, two 40-day periods. In other words, Moses has been baking in the presence of God for more than a month, perhaps more than three months, or almost three months, rather, 80 days. His face sent out horns. That is one, one possible translation of the Hebrew word. And... If you've seen statues of Moses or pictures of Moses, he often has portrayed with some horns. Thus, uh, Michelangelo's statue of Moses on the tomb of Pope Julius in Rome. Moses has these two tufts of hair in the front that stick up 
rather like horns. And of course, uh, a little closer to home, where some of us go more often than we do to Rome, over in Belfouche, on the way into town, there's a statue of Moses. And it too has the two tufts of hair in the front that look a lot like horns. That's not made up, that is taken directly from this word, which uh, the Vulgate translated according to its meaning, horns. Now that said, the word can also refer to rays of light. All of the commentators went to Habakkuk 3 for that. Habakkuk 3 says he had rays flashing from his hand, horns flashing from his hand. God sends forth rays of light. That is his glory. So Moses has rays of light. The meaning horns is interesting, of course, in terms of the Exodus context. Who are you going to go with? The horned calf or the horned mediator? Which one actually shines with the uncreated glory of God? Yes, the golden calf has horns. No, the golden calf can't save. Moses, though, has the light of God shining forth from his face. And he does bring the message of salvation. Now at the same time, the text itself shows us that this is limited. When John sees the risen Christ, Christ's whole body in Revelation 1 glows like molten bronze. Moses doesn't have that. It's just his face. And there's some light lingering on it. It wasn't his whole body. This is... Therefore, not the ultimate answer to Israel's request for a God to go before them. But it's the next best thing. You don't have a God to go before you, but you have a mediator on whom lingers some divine light. Moses has this divine light, and he is able to go before Israel. Yahweh gave them a mediator they could see who would bear and did bear the glory of God in himself. And in fact, there was enough of this glory that it scared Aaron and Israel. The message sent by the visible glory of God is not the light. If you see God's glory, you don't say, wow, that's amazing. I could bask here forever. The message sent by God's visible glory is danger. This is terrifying. This is going to kill me. I want to run away from this, or at most, I want to fall on my face and hide myself from this. When Aaron, when Israel and Aaron saw Moses, they were afraid to come near him. They see Moses coming off the mountain, and they're like, oh, not today. We don't need to interact with that. That is terrifying. Moses had enough of God's glory that it scared them. But Moses called. It's me, I'm okay. Come talk to me, Aaron. Stop, why are you guys running away? And at that moment, Moses finds out what has happened to his face. His glory was visible, it looked dangerous, but it was not overwhelming. When Moses called to them, Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him. So Israel returned when Moses called. He was carrying the glory of God, but not so much as to permanently scare them away. Then Moses gives them the message. He talked to the rulers. Then all the children of Israel came near. 
And his message was, he gave them his commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. The mediator's message was, obey all God's commands. Do what the Lord told you to do. He repeated all of the commands that are earlier in this chapter, chapter 34, plus perhaps some of the others, the Ten Commandments and so on. Moses declared those. That's the mediator's job. To tell us what God wants from us. To describe to us how we ought to live. Moses was already doing what Jesus would later do. He was relaying God's commands to the world and insisting that they be obeyed. And he was doing it while shining with God's glory. That glory highlights his trustworthiness as God's messenger. And it also highlights how good the law he brings is. This law is a law filled with light, not a law of darkness. But then comes the strange part. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Why? As we already saw, Exodus doesn't say why he put on the veil. 2 Corinthians tells us he put on the veil to hide the glory of God. He was... Unveiled before the Lord, he was unveiled before the congregation, but as he went about his daily business, he was veiled. He put on this veil so that his face could not be seen. He was not hiding himself, he was hiding God's glory. He didn't want them to see God's glory. Why not? In a very real sense, the mediator shines with the glory of God, but the mediator also conceals the glory of God. Those who saw Jesus walking around saw an ordinary man. It was only when he opened his mouth and started to speak that people said, this isn't fully normal. Never man spoke like this man. But Jesus was incognito when he walked among us. So is Moses. He puts on this veil. He's not interested in looking like a God among men. Just as Jesus manifested himself in quite an ordinary human frame. Those of you who have read Homer's Odyssey with me, remember how Homer says all the time, one of his favorite epithets for all the characters, so-and-so, magnificent as a god. He gets out of his bath and comes into dinner, magnificent as a god. How strange would that phrase sound in the Gospels? Then Jesus came out of the water, and the Spirit descended upon him, and he looked magnificent as a god. Luke doesn't say that. John, Paul, or John, Mark, Matthew, Paul, they don't use that phrase. Isaiah tells us his appearance was marred more than any man. The power of God and the glory of God were hidden in Christ. His divine glory was hidden when he was not talking. Only in his words and their dignity and power could something of his true nature be discerned. He didn't look like a God, walk like a God, or I should say fly like a God, have everything his own way like a God. Shine with uncreated glory like a God. And in the same way, his forebearer, or the first mediator, Moses, 
was not willing to trade on God's glory. His message was not admire me, but obey Yahweh. Moses deliberately conceals this glory in order to show his humility. Not to say, ta-da, look at this, Israel. You thought it was some wimpy 80-year-old guy who led you out of Egypt. Now you know. I'm more glorious than Pharaoh ever thought about being. No, Moses didn't go down that path. Nor did Jesus. He didn't come to earth to knock us flat with his divine radiance and impress everybody with pyrotechnical displays of divine light. Far from it. Moses and Jesus concealed the glory of God. Well, moving to 2 Corinthians 3, what do we take, what do we understand about the implications of this scene based on Paul's commentary? First thing to say is that the goal of ministry is to make people look like Jesus. That's what Paul uses this text in Exodus as a springboard to say. How do you make your congregation look like Jesus? You have to show them His glory. This is what we mean by the phrase, preach Christ. Show people how glorious and beautiful Jesus is. There are many things that can be done from a pulpit. I've heard some of them done. You all have too. The pastor, of course, can share his thoughts and opinions. He can describe history, psychology, science, mathematics, art, music, television, any other kind of human activity or discipline. He can get into all sorts of stuff. And occasionally these things are necessary. But the bottom line of what the preacher is supposed to be doing is showing people the glory of Christ. Paul says, that's what I'm doing. That's my ministry. My goal is to transform all of you by showing you the glory of the Lord. And he says, that's the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that image. Just as he says in Romans 8, we're saved in order to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. So we're conformed to the image. We're conformed to the image by seeing the glory. We see the glory, he says in Galatians 3, in the preaching of the word. It was before your very eyes that Christ was portrayed as crucified. So that should be the preacher's goal. To show you the glory of of Jesus Christ. That's what produces the change. That's what conforms you to the image of the Son of God. A preacher who doesn't tell you about the glory of Christ all the time is not a preacher who is wanting you to look like the glory of Christ. Paul says, I talk about the glory of Christ. I show you the glory. We all should be beholding the glory of of the Lord, transformed by that glory. And then he makes several comments, several rather disparaging comments, about Moses' ministry. Paul has the temerity to say, well, to use three words that sound really bad. So first, 
First thing he says is that the ministry of Moses was a ministry of death. Verse 7, right, his famous statement, verse 6, the letter kills, verse 7, the ministry of death written and engraved on stones. So Paul says, Moses gave you the ministry of death. And then he adds in verse 9, it was the ministry of condemnation. And in verse 10, it was inglorious. What was made glorious became inglorious. And what is Paul talking about? He looks at Exodus 34, where we see glory shining from Moses' face, and he says, ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, inglorious. Well, he tells us straight up, of course, how he means this. He's speaking comparatively. He's not speaking in absolute terms, but in comparative terms. Thus, for instance, as most of you have probably heard me say, our gross domestic product per capita in the United States each year is about $60,000. In India, meanwhile, their gross domestic product per capita is about $2,000. One thirtieth of the amount brought in, supposedly by the average American, is brought in by the average Indian. So if I say an Indian makes one-thirtieth of the amount that an American makes, I might add the phrase, those people have nothing. Now, comparatively speaking, right, that might be true. But everybody in India, by and large, has enough food to eat, works a job, goes home to a house that doesn't leak, and has what they consider to be a fulfilling and satisfactory life. They don't have nothing, they have plenty of things. Like us, probably their biggest concern most of the time is too much stuff. But those people have nothing, right? That's a comparative statement that, in an absolute sense, is simply not true. And so it is, Paul is not speaking in an absolute sense to say, the ministry Moses exercised, the glory on Moses' face, was nothing but death, condemnation, ingloriousness. He's saying compared to the greater glory that we see in Christ, Moses' ministry was not glorious at all. And he says that, the, verse 9, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Even what was glorious became inglorious in this respect because of the glory that excels. Right? So he says, in this respect, because of the glory that surpasses, clearly he's speaking in comparative terms. So when he calls it a ministry of death in verse 6, he doesn't mean that no Israelites were spiritually alive. We can list Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. Now, you might respond, well, four out of two million isn't very good. And surely that's part of Paul's point. But he's not saying that no Israelites were spiritually alive, but many were not. What is his overall point? Well, that in the Levitical system, the law is relatively more prominent. And thus we have the Ten Commandments being mentioned explicitly in Exodus 34 as summing up the tenor of the covenant. It is a law-centric covenant. The Holy Spirit, meanwhile, is relatively less prominent. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. One of Paul's ministry mantras. 
And so he says, Moses' ministry was letter-focused. Moses' ministry was, comparatively speaking, a ministry of death because you put the commandments on people and the law exposes their sin and kills them. He also then adds ministry of condemnation because the Levitical system condemned everyone who sinned deliberately. There was no sacrificial provision for a high-handed sin. Now you know and I know that every one of us sins deliberately. If we were only had to worry about our accidental sins, we'd be doing really well. And thus, it's a ministry of condemnation in that there is no Levitical channel for dealing with deliberate sin. Hence Psalm 51. You do not desire sacrifice or I would give it. Isaiah 1. What do you mean by this trampling of my courts? Who has required this at your hand? God says, there's no way of forgiveness through the Levitical system. Now that is not the same thing as saying there's no way of forgiveness. Psalm 51 itself testifies to God's forgiveness outside and beyond the Levitical channels. But to say, to say that is to admit that those Levitical channels are not big enough to deal with the needs of God's people. Hence, the ministry is comparatively a ministry of condemnation. That is, condemnation is more prominent in the Old Covenant than in the New. In fact, it's an inglorious covenant. Verse 10, what was made glorious became inglorious. Well, we've already seen this. In the tabernacle, what do you read about? Curtain after curtain after curtain. Ram's hair, goat's hair, seal skins, another kind of durable leather. Right in MIV's immemorial translation or memorable translation. God is hiding the fullness of his majesty under these incredibly thick tent curtains. The pillar of cloud said the same thing. The glory has to be hidden. The glory is concealed. It's behind a cloud. It's under a curtain. It is not visible to the general public, not easily accessible to Israel. And Moses' face being veiled then highlights that even further, or should I say darkens that even further. That the glory of God has to be kept in in the Old Covenant. Put it under a curtain. Hide your lamp under a bushel. Put the cloud around the glory. Put the veil over the face. Don't let the glory of God shine forth too freely. Paul, Paul dares to term the very real presence of God inglorious because of how little of the majesty and brightness of the Almighty it communicated. We can see it as well in the fact that Aaron and the Israelites ran away but then came close when Moses called. The glory was intense, but it was endurable. That alone tells us how little glory was there. The face, right? Moses' face was not like the sun shining in its strength. The people were able to come close, meaning that God's glory though it is shining on his face, is not in its fullness. Far from it. It's a very small fraction of the glory of God. 
So what can we say then? Within the new covenant, the glory is far more intense. But it is also far more endurable because God has concealed himself not in a cloud, not under tent curtains, but in the living flesh of a man. And thus Christ is the image of God and possessed of all the glory of God, and yet that glory is now endurable for us. John sees the risen Christ and is not struck dead. Jacob, I have seen the face of God and lived. John can say the same thing. The fact, brothers and sisters, that the glory is more endurable can confuse us very badly. We often kind of find ourselves thinking there must be less glory in the new covenant than there was in the old because it doesn't hurt me. Right? Hollywood shows the Ark of the Covenant slaughtering Nazis. Oh, that was real glory. Wow. That was amazing. We go to church and our church couldn't slaughter a Nazi. Are you kidding? Right? There's no glory here. That's how we tend to think. Scripture tells us no. It's far more glory here in the church than there ever was in the shining face of Moses under those thick curtains of the tabernacle. So, the Mosaic Covenant is comparatively a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation, inglorious compared to God's ministry, the amount of glory that He has shown us in His Son, in the church, in the New Covenant. Now, that said, right, we remember that the Mosaic Covenant in absolute terms was certainly instituted by God and was a way in which God provided a mediator for His people. Paul says how bad the Mosaic Covenant was. He's speaking comparatively. He's not saying that no one was saved in the Levitical system, that it only damned people. Far from it. It did show a glorious glorious mediator, which is, right, the point of our sermon. The glory of God shines in the face of the mediator. But the meaning, especially of the veil, but really of every sign in the Levitical system that pointed to eventual obsolescence, that pointed to the hiddenness of God in that system, the meaning was that the Levitical system would end. Moses, 2 Corinthians 3.13 put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Moses hid his face so that Israel would not realize how temporary this Levitical system was. The glory of the Levitical system was always intended to be temporary. It was passing away on the very day that God instituted it. Moses hid that from the people by putting on the glory, or putting on the glory, putting on the veil and saying, this glory is temporary. This glory will be swallowed up by a far greater glory. Don't think that this glory is the be-all, end-all. There's something far better coming. That's what Moses' veil said. As he walked around the camp, concealing God's glory under the veil, He was hinting to Israel that 
Don't look at me. I'm not the one. This is not the ultimate source of God's glory. You want a God to go before you? I will do what I can. But there's a greater glory coming. And of course, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the God who at the beginning said, let there be light, that's the God who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That glory, the glory of God in the face of Jesus, swallows up all the glory that was in the tabernacle. God is light. The knowledge of God is light to our minds, intellectual light. The face of Jesus is the supreme place where we gain knowledge of what God is like. I'm not talking about artist's conception of the face of Jesus. I'm talking about the real deal. The human face that God made for His Son. The face that looked on the generation of vipers. The face that said, Son, behold your mother. That's where God's glory is revealed to perfection. How do we see that face today? In the preaching of the Word. Moses, when God passed by, he heard God's name proclaimed. He's seeing the back. Now we see the face, but we still hear God's name proclaimed. In the preaching of the Word, you can see the face of Christ, and that's how you can and must be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. I don't have to put on a veil when I leave the pulpit. The glory of the new covenant is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. There's no need to hide that glory from you all. It won't dissolve or go away. So look at Jesus. Be transformed by his glory. Jacob saw God and lived. Look at Jesus and you will too. Let's pray. Father, we want to see your Son. Give us a God to go before us. Let us behold the light of the knowledge of your glory shining in your Son's face. Help me to preach gloriously. Help us all to see the glorious face of your Son in the preaching of your Word week by week. Father, we long to see him. There is no sight more worth having in heaven, in earth, in the sea, or anywhere else. Show us yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.